Hello, hello, hello. So I have some absolutely amazing news before I start this episode of the podcast. This month, Des Kelly Interiors will be sponsoring my podcast, The Shane Walsh Podcast, to celebrate Sleep Timber. Des Kelly Interiors are an Irish-owned business specialising in all things beds, mattresses, flooring, carpets and home furnishings. They have nine showrooms across Dublin, Kildare and Meath. This month, they are celebrating Sleep Timber, where they will be running massive discounts across all nine stores in their bedding department. They'll be talking all things sleep on their socials, so make sure to tune in. I've always talked about the importance of sleep and I've had the amazing Tom Coleman on and he has done the research for Des Kelly on this side of things as well. And I'm honoured to be working with a brand that values sleep as much as I do. They have a huge range of beds and mattresses as well as a dedicated fitness connection range. They have very kindly offered and given me a discount code for all the listeners. When you quote Shane Walsh in store, you will get 10% off all beds and mattresses. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode and massive thank you to Des Kelly Interiors for sponsoring the podcast. Hello, so a quick one from myself with some absolutely amazing news and something that I'm really excited about and I probably wanted to do for a very, very, very long time. So I am hosting my very, very first solo uh, seminar, which is a female fat loss seminar in Dublin on the 9th of October, which is a Sunday. And I'll be starting at around half nine or 10 o'clock and we finishing up at about half three. So it's going to be in the Radisson Blue St. Helens Hotel in Dublin. So it's close enough to the M50 if you're coming from various different locations. I know some people are even coming, have even booked flights and are coming in for it. I'm probably going to keep the numbers like smaller than I probably should because I want to make sure that everyone's getting attention to what they're problems are or what they are looking for out of it so what is the female fat loss seminar going to be talking about it's going to be looking at the basics of the menstrual cycle it's going to be looking at how do you train and you working your nutrition around your menstrual cycle we're going to talk about the pill does it cause weight gain the different types of pill we are also going to talk about menopause perimenopause how to work with people around that as well we are going to work around pcos we're going to talk about endometriosis loads of different things so we'll be very very full-on information but this is perfect for someone who's just looking to upskill themselves it's perfect for a personal trainer or a nutritionist looking for a portal or a way for them to kind of like upskill themselves and up their upskill their knowledge so that they can help with their clients so i know the people that have purchased the tickets are so far i'm really really excited for those already so the talk is happening on the sunday the 9th of october in the radisson blue st helens hotel in dublin and it will kick off at about half nine or ten o'clock and will be on for the day so tickets are the early bird price tickets are 70 euro dublin hotels are not cheap so it's it's 70 euro for a ticket if you're coming with a friend bring a friend if you're coming solo a couple of the people are already coming solo as well so it could be a way for you to meet myself in person i'd love i want to meet more people i ran a seminar when i used to work in a gym and i ran that for free and i think about 30 people showed up which was amazing on the two parts so there'll be lunch in the in the middle that you guys can get as well and then there'll be tea and coffee provided by me on the morning of because we'll need tea and coffee. So hopefully you got you everyone listen to this or some people listen to this will join me in my first very solo in-person seminar. I've missed doing these. This has been a goal for 2022 and I just need that little bit of a push to do it. So thank you so much for all your support for listening to the podcast over the last little while. I'm really, really excited for this. So if you are interested, click the link in the write-up below. And I look forward to seeing you at the Radisson Blue St. Helens Hotel, Dublin on the 9th of October. If you have any questions about it, let me know and I will see you there. Libby, how are we? Shane, I'm so well. Thank you so much for having me join you. Thank you so much. I know it's uh, you're over the different side of the world. That's why I love doing these podcasts over with like Australians and Kiwis and we have Americans. Everyone's it, it's a great way to kind of interact. So for anyone who isn't aware of who you are and what you do and the amazing books that you've got out there, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? <laughs> sure. I I grew up in Tamworth in country New South Wales in Australia with chickens in the backyard and we grew some of our own food. Uh, and then I went to university for 14 years, which I know makes me sound really thick and like I failed everything or went to the pub too much, which may or may not be true, but I very much love learning and I still do. So I originally studied nutrition and dietetics and then did honours and then did a PhD in biochemistry. So there's lots of science in my background. But since then, I've worked with people one-on-one 
for just over 20 years. And so I've combined my 20 plus years of clinical experience with my 14 years at uni to create what I call my three pillar approach. And those three pillars are the biochemical, the nutritional and the emotional. So I look at absolutely everything through those three lenses and focus primarily on women's health. And in relation to kind of the education that's out there at the minute for women's health, do you think it's definitely improving or do you think there's a hell of a long way to go? Uh, they're both. <laughs> there are some huge improvements. I actually went to a conference uh, at the start of this week where the presenters were so inspiring. There were some very holistic gynecologists who were speaking about very um, really uh, integrative ways to help women manage uh, and deal with some of the challenges they can have, particularly those related to sex hormone imbalances. Uh, and that was incredibly inspiring and seeing more of a team-based approach with naturopaths working with gynaecologists, with nutritionists working uh, with gynaecologists, with nutrition being brought in as the foundation changes. So I do see more of that, but I do also, of course, very sadly still talk to women, receive emails from women saying, you know, uh, you know, I was diagnosed with XYZ and the only option I was given was surgery. So I've had this and this and this removed uh, and I'm, I still feel dreadful. So there's still so far to go, Shane, in, in really supporting women really holistically with their health. Why do you think that it's so like I th if from from having done so many interviews now and I've had the likes of Dr. Stacey Sims on, I've had Lara Bryden on, I've had yourself on. Why do you think that side of the world is so advanced compared to this side of the world in relation to that topic in particular? Well, I don't know if it's this side of the world. It might be that uh, Lara was at the conference I was at the other day. She was one of the inspiring speakers. Um, so there's, there's, I guess, some collaboration going on down here. But yeah. because of, obviously, you know, podcasts like yours, the information is reaching further and further afield. But um, And I know in Germany there's some really progressive integrative doctors over there approaching all sorts of things holistically. So... It's definitely spreading. So you're helping to bring it uh, to, to a more global audience with what you're doing. So it's great. And have you noticed that the kind of like I know the, the, the main topic for it today is in relation to Russian women's syndrome, which you, you have the amazing book on. Do you like what is Russian women's syndrome and why is that happening for so many women out there at the minute? And what can be done to kind of like tweak it a little bit? Yeah, so it's a big deal. It was, I think we let, I'll be really clear for listeners. So rushing woman syndrome is not a medical condition. Yeah. It was actually the name I gave to a book I wrote in 2011. And uh, I've now got an online course based on the same thing to help people who want to learn about it in that way and help them resolve it. But it's I wrote the book based on an emerging trend I was seeing in more and more of my patients. And, you know, once upon a time, women just walked through the door. They were mostly on time. And I started to notice so many women ran late for appointments. They were piling more and more up onto their plates. Their digestive system symptoms were getting worse. Uh, their reproductive system symptoms were getting worse. The PMS was going through the roof. Their thyroid dysfunction, so not necessarily thyroid disease, but a thyroid that just wasn't working as well as it once did. Sleep was compromised. Relationship qualities were compromised. And I was just seeing a real intensification of that entire scenario. And I'm someone who wants to get right to the heart of what's really going on. And so I, what, what that work, what that body of work that I created about rushing woman syndrome, what that essentially shows is what's, what living in the fight or flight fairly permanently does to our health. So there are, there, there are different parts of the nervous system, obviously, but one part is called the autonomic nervous system. And the only thing people need to remember about that is that we can't boss it around. We can't instruct that with our conscious mind. It controls functions in our body, like our heart rate, how quickly our hair grows. Uh, if you cut yourself, you don't have to talk to that cut and say, come on, you can heal. You just look at your, the cut on your hand three days later and it's all gone away. So that's the autonomic nervous system driving that. But there are two branches to the autonomic nervous system, the sympathetic nervous system, which is the fight or flight response. I often call it the red zone. And then the opposite arm is the parasympathetic nervous system, which is the rest, digest, reproduce arm of the nervous system. Where all, And that arm of the nervous system is activated when repair work is going on. So 
very calming, it's very restorative, and I often refer to it as the green zone. And with rushing woman's syndrome, the challenge for those women is that it's as if they get stuck in the fight or flight response in that red zone. And because from an evolutionary perspective, science suggests humans have been on the planet for somewhere between about 150,000 and 300,000 years. And so if we allow that enormous expanse of time to be represented by a one kilometre walk, the last 75 years where so much has changed, let's think about it. So pesticides were introduced to the food supply in the 1940s. We saw the introduction of credit cards, colour televisions, um, mobile phones, the internet, social media, and obviously all of those things have had such a significant ripple effect on the way that we live and operate and our, avail our availability to others, the way we communicate. But so much has changed in that really short space of time. And the last 75 years, when we consider it in the context of the whole expanse of time we've been on the planet, it's only a single step, a one single step in that great big long one kilometre journey of our evolution as a species. And we haven't yet adapted to understand what our hormones are now communicating to us. So for all of that one kilometre walk up until the very recent past, the only thing that adrenaline meant, for example, was that our life was in danger. Whereas now we make adrenaline, lock your ears, everybody, when we consume caffeine because of our perceptions of pressure and urgency. Now, I put the word perception there on purpose because we forget that pressure and urgency are we get to choose them. They're, they're, they are perceptions. Of course, there are things that are urgent. If you get a phone call from school that your child's been injured, that's urgent. You want to get there quickly. But what most people do is they make what they get to do each day full of stress and pressure and urgency. And then the other big thing these days that leads us to produce adrenaline is that we either consciously or unconsciously worry about what other people think of us. And that's a that's a real big one for, for so many people. Either And sometimes we're not even aware that that's going on. So but the body hasn't yet learned to discern between the adrenaline we make when there's a genuine threat to our life. So if a car drives out in front of us versus the adrenaline we make because we've had a couple of coffees and we've got 600 unopened emails and no time in our day to deal with them. It's all the same to the body. And so there's a host of biochemical changes that then go on because of that elevated adrenaline. And if they were short-lived the way they were historically, no problem because we would peak adrenaline and then go back to baseline. But what most people do is it just goes up, 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 up across the day, every day. It's the constant relentless production of stress hormones that's a big part of the problem. What tools do you use for yourself to protect you from that kind of like peak and trough, peak and trough of stress? So, yeah, so um, I do consume caffeine, but I'm careful with it I'm not just oh yeah I'll have another coffee just because it tastes delicious I'm fairly conscious of it I don't drink it after 11 o'clock in the morning uh, I went through a period in my life where I had none um, for four years because of other things that were going on that were already leading me to make a lot of adrenaline uh, but really you know we we teach what we need to learn don't we and I with the when I started to dig into because as I said earlier I love to try to get to the heart of what's really going on and I started to reflect on the way our brain works and so for example over the last two years a lot of people have worked from home and that you, you might get a phone call from a colleague who says where's that work I needed it yesterday and so I paused and that was an example, you know, and that would stress me out, people would say to me. And I'd think, okay, so the request, that request for work is not in and of itself stressful. But what makes that stressful is that we don't actually hear what someone says, we hear what we think they meant. So we make up a story about who we must be in our colleagues' eyes for them to have phoned us and asked us for that work. So that part is actually not true. That part's actually a story that we make up based on our own patterns and associations that we've been running probably since we were a lot younger. And that's the part that makes it stressful. So I started to dig into, okay, it's actually we have these traits, T-R-A-I-T-S, these traits that we need other people to see in us. And so much of our what we currently call stress, I think, stems from when we are perceiving that someone is seeing us in the opposite way to the way we need to be seen. So that's a big part of what I want to share these days and help women to really explore for themselves 
uh, it's made a world of difference to my own conduct and my own thinking. So literally catching myself in the act of making up a story or uh, and stopping it and going, that's you made that up, that's not actually true. And then the other part of that is having flexibility in how you can handle other people seeing you because they're going to see you based on their life experience up until this point in time and th- there's not a lot you can do about that. So if you know in your own heart that, you're what you would consider to be a good human, be happy with that. But it's easier said than done. A lot easier said than done. But again, <laughs> and the, you mentioned in the book the importance of about the kind of like the link with belief system. And you mentioned in it the kind of link with kind of like fathers or kind of male role models in the life. How do you, how do you kind of challenge this with clients or work through that with clients? Because as you said, there are a lot of stories that we all have and that they either protect us or they are not so helpful for us. How do you challenge this and work it? Like it can offer, it can stem from various different places, but how do you kind of actually challenge that yourself? Yeah. So when, um, so when I would work with someone, I do this in the course, I'll say, when you were growing up, whose love did you crave the most? Now, as adults, we often retrofit this because we can look back on, let's say, a father who was very quiet and withdrawn. So not super engaged or we might look back on a father whose predominant behaviour pattern was to throw to anger or frustration and raised voices, for example. And when we look back on any of those situations, when we're adults, we can say, okay, I understand that he is a product of all of his joy and all of his pain up until that point in time. Uh, and, you know, and, and you can make, some people can make peace with it that way. But in that moment when you were growing up, there was usually one person's love you craved more and it was the one whose unconditional love you had less certainty about. And so when, when I would ask that question to someone and if they would say their father, then I would say, who did you have to be for that person and who could you never be? And so then you start to say, well, I had to be a hard worker. I had to be competent. I had to be efficient. I had to be helpful. They're re- kind, thoughtful, selfless. They're all words that will come out of what, a, what I would call a rushing woman's mouth as to how she needed to be perceived or how she perceives she needed to behave for that significant relationship to have as much equilibrium as possible. And we then believe that those traits are who we need to be to survive in the world because when we when you track it all back, when little baby humans are born, we can't survive on our own. Other animals can because they can get their own food and clothing and shelter, but baby humans can't. So we need adults in our lives to provide us with food and clothing and shelter. And so we might, let's say we feel cold, we're, we're a brand new baby, we feel cold, it's uncomfortable or that might feel frightening or uncertain but certainly uncomfortable and we make a noise and then hopefully an adult comes along and wraps us up and takes makes us warm and takes the discomfort or the fear away and then we're hungry next minute so we make a noise same thing so the, the discomfort gets taken away because of the provision of services by these people who appear above us and we start to unconsciously work out that we must maintain their approval for them to keep providing us with Um, with what we need to survive and because we start to unconsciously work out that we need their approval we basically link their love to our survival but we know that as adults a life with love and approval in it is delicious but we can get by without it it's just that it pretty much runs our life and our choices and our decisions and our perceptions about who we perceive we need to be to survive it'll run our life until we dig in and actually see this for what it really is i think one of the the when i was reading the book in preparation for this in relation to the belief system one of the things you said like if if say if the role model or the father or whatever was late you would like some people would attach a story that i'm not worthy enough or i'm not beautiful enough or i'm not skinny enough or some of the stuff that you mentioned in the book it's I find that fascinating that that can be the old, that can be where the mind goes to straight away. Like those stories, are the ones that go straight away. How can, why is that? that those are the ones that go boing flip, like almost like the mind just rebounds, like an elastic band saying, right, I'm not pretty enough for this. 
So when, so let's say there's been a consistent behaviour pattern from one of our parents and then that behaviour is different. So let's say you're four years old, um, you adore your father. Whenever he comes home from work, he normally picks you up and tickles you and plays with you when he first gets home and then one day he doesn't and he walks through the door and he says with real intensity in his voice, go to your room. And so you go to your room and you can hear your mother and father with raised voices in the kitchen having a really intense conversation. When we are little, when we're young, when we're four, we, from an emotional maturation perspective, we are what's called egocentric. And sadly, some people never change. But when we're little, we're supposed to be egocentric. And all that means is that you believe that everyone in your in your world is the way they are because of you. So when they're happy, it's because of what you've just done. Uh, when they're unhappy, you think it's the same. So you've got no ability to look into what's going on out in the kitchen with your dad's behaviour to see that he's behaving with such intensity because he's just been made redundant and he doesn't know how on earth he's going to pay for your education. So you can't see into his world at that point. All you know is that you're in your room, it feels uncomfortable or might be a little bit frightening, it's confusing because it's not what normally goes on. And because of our psychology at that age, we are unable to see their I'm going to use the word flaws for want of a better word, but they're not flaws. They're part of who that person is. But so we can, for ease of understanding, I'll use the word flaws. Our brain is not allowed to see their flaws because if we did, we'd probably run away and we wouldn't survive on our own because we're too young, we're four. So we're not allowed to see their flaws. And so the only option our brain has at that young age is to create a belief in our own deficiency. And so that's where the beliefs start to come from, I'm not something enough. I'm not good enough. I'm not tall enough. I'm not pretty enough. I'm not smart enough. I'm not loud enough. I'm not quiet enough. So in other words, we start to, it's not conscious, we unconsciously link something about the way we were before dad's, before dad behaved differently and we absorb that belief then. And it may not happen after one occasion, but if that behaviour continues, to happen where you get sent to your room and there's intense conversations in the kitchens or in the kitchen or some version of that, it just then solidifies that belief. Because a belief is just a thought that we've had over and over again and never questioned. The human mind fascinates me. It really, really does. And one of the things that when I think a lot of people are going to relate to what the question I'm about to ask is in relation to when people are kind of getting stressed they tend to go for a certain type of food. I know there's individuals like myself, when I get stressed, I don't really eat. I know there's that side of things, but there's the other side of things when people get stressed, they tend to go for more carbohydrate-rich foods. Why is that? And it does that stem from somewhere or is it just like that kind of panic mode that sets in? Yeah, so great. I love the question, Shane. Thank you. So there's a few mechanisms, but one of the main ones is that in any given moment, there are two fuel sources for the human body, glucose uh, and fat. And we're always using a combination of both. And even as we're sitting here, obviously, we're using energy where our heart's beating, we're breathing, we're thinking, we're blinking. So all of that requires fuel. But right now, are you burning 50% glucose and 50% fat or is it more like 80% fat and 20% glucose or the reverse of that? Are you burning 70% glucose and 30% fat? And our nervous system and what's going on with our stress hormones has a huge influence on the fuel that your body is directed to primarily use. So when you are in that fight or flight response, when there are elevated levels of adrenaline, for example, because the body is getting the message from the elevated adrenaline that your life's literally in danger, it needs to give you a fast-burning fuel to allow you to escape from that danger. And so if you haven't recently eaten and there's not enough glucose in your blood to support your escape, we've got glucose stored in our muscles and our liver, obviously in the form of glycogen. And so we will mobilise that glycogen. The body converts it back into glucose. Blood glucose levels go up to give you this fast-burning fuel so that you can quickly escape from the danger your body thinks you're in. Now, a 70-kilogram person has the storage capacity for about 2,500 calories of glycogen. So we've got 
a fairly small reserve of glucose in in a fuel tank. And then a 70, that same 70 kilogram person has a storage capacity for about 130,000 calories of fat. So it's way bigger. But because glucose is the get out of danger fuel, once that fuel tank starts to get below about half full, your desire for it will be switched on because your body wants you to top up that escape fuel tank in case there really is a threat to your life so that you can literally get out of danger. So there are many reasons why people crave carbohydrates, but that's a big one. There can be emotional reasons, of course, as well, but that's a really big one that um, because they've lived on a roller coaster of stress hormones and a blood glucose roller coaster all morning, um, fueled by caffeine and perceptions of pressure and urgency and too much processed food, and then bang, middle of the afternoon, give me the sugar. So because they've they've burnt through, they've burnt primarily glucose, not their body fat. And I have seen that literally in thousands of people over my working life. That that inability to use body fat efficiently as a fuel because of stress. Yeah, it's kind of like it's, it's it's a default mechanism for so many, and like obviously there are emotional elements and all that kind of stuff, but attached to it as well. You've mentioned caffeine so many times already, and I know in Australia caffeine is like religion uh, down there. It's like it's, if you came to Ireland, I don't think you'd be too happy with the coffee. Um, but caffeine plays a massive role on how we cope with stress and like caffeine isn't a negative all the time it can be a positive it does have benefits all that kind of stuff so i don't want people to come at me about caffeine but how big a role does caffeine actually play in the role of stress and how can we use it to our advantage and how can we watch out for the disadvantages Mm, again great question so it's there's no one blanket statement i would ever make around caffeine because everybody respond so differently to it so the when i'm talking about rushing woman syndrome though so obviously adrenaline is the main hormone behind anxious feelings and because primarily of some people's thoughts and perceptions they already have fairly high circulating levels of adrenaline so when that person consumes caffeine from any source it can lead them into a very uncomfortable place because it's going to lead them to make more adrenaline. However, if someone is genuinely chilled out, they don't sweat the small stuff, they don't believe every thought they think, um, they are doing, you know, regular movement because I'll get into that in a second, but but particularly if they are a genuinely chilled out person, then caffeine, caffeine will probably just make their brain focus a bit better for a while. So we all have different thresholds and tolerance levels too for for adrenaline and before it's going to tip us over into feeling really anxious. And we just need to be really honest with ourselves about how it affects us rather than just thinking, you know, I love it. I couldn't bear to live without it. No one's saying that. Just be honest with yourself about, you know, I'm fine with one, but I have noticed that my heart starts racing or I get an upset tummy or I get a bit jittery or I, I start to feel like everything in my day is really urgent when I have the second one, just start to notice that. And it has a half-life of eight hours. So when people don't sleep properly, it's the first thing they need to look at is what's going on with their caffeine consumption because obviously caffeine binds to, when we consume it, it binds to the adenosine receptors in our brain and that's what signals the production of adrenaline to the adrenals and makes the adrenals make adrenaline. So um, we actually want adenosine to bind to the adenosine receptors in our brain because it's very calming. So uh, it, it can mess with it can mess with that calm. Tea is a little bit different because tea contains theanine, and theanine can buffer the effect of the caffeine. So you still get a lift, but it's not a full throttle one the way you get it from coffee. So, um, but also too to the movement side of things, if we think about Again, historically, adrenaline saying your life's in danger, it's preparing us to fight or get away. So there's a because of the host of biochemical changes that go on, our blood pressure elevates. I'm not sure about Ireland, but down under, one in three adults has high blood pressure, and there are many mechanisms driving that, but this stress response is one of them. The second thing that happens with elevated adrenaline is the blood supply that's normally so fantastic to our digestive system gets diverted away from digestion to the periphery to our arms and legs because that's what's going to power us to get out of the danger that the body thinks we're in. So 
uh, gut function is compromised. Down under, again, one in five women have irritable bowel syndrome and food plays a role in that, but so does this stress response. And I don't think it's talked about enough when we talk about digestion. Uh, and then as we talked about a minute ago, the third thing that happens is the body's preferential fuel becomes glucose, not body fat. And so it, let's say you're sitting at your desk, you've had a few coffees, so you've already got a climbing level of adrenaline because it's got that half-life of eight hours. So we're, we're ri- we've got rising adrenaline. We are someone who needs other people to see us as efficient and hardworking and competent. And we've got all these unopened emails and our day's already really full and we don't know when on earth we're going to get the time to reply to all these emails. And so consciously or unconsciously, we're worrying that the people who we're not replying to yet are thinking that we're inefficient or that we don't value them or care about them. So there's that silent stress going on, up the adrenaline keeps going, but we're sitting at our desk and you've got blood pressure changes, you've got gut disrupt, digestive system disruptions, and now you've mobilised glucose into your blood, but you're not using it, you're not moving, you're not exercising. And so to deal with that elevation in glucose, because obviously elevated glucose is damaging to the lining of blood vessels, your pancreas has got to make insulin, but you haven't actually eaten. All you've done is had coffee and worried about everything. (laughs) And so now you've got elevated blood glucose and you're sitting on your bottom at your desk So your body will make insulin to move that glucose back to your liver and your muscles. And if there is any leftover, it'll put it in your body fat because we've got to get the the glucose out of the blood and and store it somewhere. So it'll put it into our body fat cells. So so without movement as well to to actually utilise the effects that the adrenaline creates, because obviously it's supposed to help us run away or fight. What about decaf? So many people ask me that. So a couple of things. For some people, no problem, as long as it's Swiss water filtered um, because obviously when they used to mostly use a dreadful chemical concoction and I think the chemicals were worse for people than the caffeine, but now most most decaf coffee is Swiss water filtered. So, yes, you're going to get rid of the adrenaline. For some women, though, they need a big focus on their liver and coffee has some other compounds in it that's still going to upregulate phase one liver detoxification. And that's fine if their phase two liver detoxification is all okay. But if there's been, I don't know, lots of Chardonnay and lots of biscuits going in for a couple of decades, those phase two pathways can be somewhat compromised. And so when we speed up phase one, it just adds to the problems, which is another whole can of worms that we won't go into right now. But so for some people, decaf, no worries. For others, um, yeah, they're still better off without that. What about the role of alcohol on that kind of managing the stress and stuff like that? Because I think some people can use alcohol as a way of de-stressing. But what's, what's the reality? Well, alcohol firstly is a depressant. Uh, on our nervous system and it is also a big disruptor for sex hormone balance so it really messes with estrogen metabolism especially um so it's so it's regular overconsumption is so highly linked to five major cancers including breast cancer so the worry is the, the and the more the more a woman drinks the the her risk factor for breast cancer just keeps going up so it's it's really concerning the way that we now kind of it's it's become quite normalized to use alcohol to relax and um it's it, when something's common it's not yeah I'll rephrase it actually it's become very common it's but it's not normal and it's not wise and when I would when I was still seeing patients uh, you know as part of the consult I would say do you drink alcohol yep okay, what do you have, oh, gin and tonic or wine or beer or whatever it is? And I'd get them, I used to have diet red water that I'd dyed in my cupboard with a wine glass and I'd get people to show me how much wine they'd pour. And obviously when you're talking to someone like you or I, Shane, and we're asking them to, you know, demonstrate how much they drink, they're always going to pull up short. They're not They're not going to, you know, you know, and some people probably do it on purpose and others won't even realise they're pulling up short. But in all those years that I did that, no one poured less than 200 mils of wine and a standard drink is 100 mils of wine. Uh, and there's, you know, the heart organisations from around the world say that it's okay to have two standard drinks a day for women as long as they're having two days off a week. 
but for a lot of women, they have four standard drinks a day without even really realising. But the World Cancer Research Fund, their position statement on alcohol uh, is that women need to, can only consume less than one standard drink per day. So it's pretty it's it's pretty concerning a lot of the patterns we've had. But when I would when I'd say to someone, you know, do you drink? Yep. When if it was if I if it was if, especially if they had PMS, if they had um, signs of excessive amounts of estrogen, inadequate amounts of progesterone production. I'm going to look at alcohol and when I'd say, okay, we'll finish the sentence, wine is, or whatever the drink was, oh, and, and that's where you get the truth, you know, and I would go until we had about 200 statements on the page, wine is, and a common one was, it's the only way I can relax in the evening. And I would call them on it and say, well, it's a story I understand, but it's a story you're telling yourself to justify your choices because before you drank every night, there were other ways you relaxed. It's just the story you now have and we need to change the story and find another way for you to relax. What's generally the reaction you get back when you say it's a story? Tears. <laughs> sometimes sometimes real frustration or anger, but often tears because it's the truth. Yeah, it's, yeah, kind, no, of like a, it's kind of like it's a toxic confronting. positivity thing. Yeah, it's kind of like I deserve this. It's kind of like with the food side of things. It, it's that kind of bartering thing where like almost like bartering thing with the devil. Like if you want to drink, drink. But if it's a couple yeah. mechanism, it's something like there are support services out there. I think that's the best way to. You mentioned PMS. And I think I've spoken about PMS so many times in the podcast, but I think it's important to understand that I know in the book, you talk about like, are you actually supposed to get PMS? And can you expand on that a little bit more? Sure. No. So it's like your periods are like a report card that you get. Your your body doesn't have a voice, but it gives you symptoms. It gives you feedback to let you know whether it's happy or not with your choices. And when you have symptoms that are painful, uncomfortable, frustrate you, make you sad, and I mean any of any of them, including PMS, it's your body saying to you, I need you to make some different choices, usually in the areas of the way that you eat, drink, move, think, breathe, believe, or perceive. And sometimes in sometimes it's in a number of those areas. And we can miss the message too easily or their messages that we don't want to hear. But in our heart of hearts, there's a voice inside us that has our back, that knows when it's time for us to get off our emails and go to bed, that knows when, you know, we've been sitting with lousy posture and not breathing properly and it's time to stand up and breathe diaphragmatically for a while when we need to go and have a glass of water, that knows what we would be a nutritious thing for us to have for lunch. But we often don't listen to that voice inside uh, of us. So the PMS is, uh, it's feedback from your body that something needs to change or a couple of things need to change. And a very common scenario I see is too much estrogen in the lead up to the menstrual period in relation to progesterone. So sometimes that's because of that the person hasn't ovulated because we make most of our, virtually all of our progesterone after we ovulate or uh, they've ovulated, but they're not getting a good progesterone peak because of stress, because of nutritional deficiencies. Uh, and so they can have an excessive amount of estrogen in relation to progesterone. Or for some people, they've just got an excessive amount of estrogen because of their, because their estrogen metabolism is compromised. And estrogen metabolism is entirely down to liver detoxification and then what's become known as phase three uh, detoxification, which occurs in the gut microbiome. So, when so through the menstruation years, obviously women make most of their estrogen from their ovaries, and that estrogen then binds to a receptor, so a key going into a lock, and it has its lovely or it's not so lovely effects while it's in the receptor site, and then it runs out of puff, and so it falls out of the receptor site until a new unit of estrogen can come along and bind. But when that old estrogen falls out, it doesn't just evaporate or it doesn't just leave the body. Its structure actually has to be altered before it can be eliminated. And that change process is detoxification. So that unit of estrogen will be a good way to picture it is that it gets delivered to the front door of the liver, undergoes phase one detoxification. All sorts of nutrients are needed for phase one. One of them is iron. It's the most common nutritional deficiency in the world amongst menstruating women, amongst pregnant women and children. 
So straight up, if you're iron deficient, so much is compromised. Your phase one detox, you need iron to make thyroid hormones, you need iron for the oxygenation of all of your tissues, so it enormously affects energy. Iron deficiency is such a big thing that has to be addressed. But anyway, the estrogen goes along its phase one pathway on because and it's a fat-soluble substance. And the idea of liver detoxification is to take substances that if they were to accumulate inside you, they'd be a problem for you. It's got to take those things and change their structure from fat-soluble to water-soluble so that you can then incorporate it into your fecal matter and eliminate it. So once it goes through phase one, hopefully it then goes on to phase two. But as I mentioned earlier, sometimes phase two detox pathways can be compromised, again, because of nutritional deficiencies, long-term poor quality lifestyle choices, particularly lousy dietary choices. But then if it does get through phase two, it gets spat out the other end of the liver and imagine that the that estrogen is now in an envelope and it's all sealed up. And then that little sealed envelope then gets delivered in the bile to the estrobilome, to all the bacteria in the gut microbiome that deal with estrogen. And some of those bacteria can make an enzyme that's got a big, long, stupid name called beta-glucuronidase. Don't worry about the name. But when we have too many of those gut bugs making too much of that enzyme, it can open the envelope and back out comes the estrogen and we put it back into circulation. So some women have PMS, PMT, because they're recycling way too much estrogen and that recycled form can be highly problematic as in a big risk factor for the development of things like fibroids, real concerning uterine bleeding and even breast cancer. So we the way to look up, so, so two ways to approach PMS from the way I see it is address the stress that helps with ovulation, address nutritional deficiencies because that helps with ovulation and it helps with liver detoxification and then address the liver, address your detox mechanisms and support a healthy gut microbiome. They're, it's those regulatory systems in the body that are going to that make such a big difference to whether we ovulate or not and whether we can metabolize estrogen efficiently. I love that. And the analogies are like, I, I've been getting a lot of hand gestures here on the video. So I can't think of people who miss it in those. Um, <laughs> I'm going to play devil's advocate here and try and use a client example or a kind of a case study of a, say, a mom in her 40s that has three kids below the age of, say, 10, working professional and is trying to cart the kids to football, rugby, trying to do everything. How do you bring in barriers or what can that person do to reduce that stress so that they don't necessarily have those those kind of like massive factors of PMS, what can they do? Because it, it's well, it's all re- really, really like, I, I know someone's going to say that this is all really easily to do, but how to actually apply it to someone's life is where the difficulty can lie. So firstly, I actually would take a step back from that person's life and, and ask them what their values are. So, and I don't mean ethical preferences like kindness or, I don't mean those ethical preferences. I mean, what does your life actually demonstrate that you value? Because there are only 24 hours in a day and we often pile things into our days that are actually low-priority tasks for us. And let's say our number one value is family, then taking the children to rugby and all the things you just mentioned, that's going to be a high priority. And so then when we're doing those things, it's, remembering that we get to not that we have to i'll give you another little a little silly example um, of a lady i worked with and she had three children and she had been the eldest one was 18 and he was in his final year of high school and he was going to be going off to university the following year but anyway every day so she had an 18 year old and at the time a 12 year old and a 10 year old and every day she made their lunches and she in the 18 years she'd been making I'm sorry in the 15 14 years she'd been making lunches she blamed the lunches on why she was always late for work for whatever she had to do it was always she'd always just said that it's because I have to make the lunches I'm just always late anyway there was one day she's standing there she said in the kitchen going I hate making these lunches I'm making these lunches they make me late the same story 
that she was telling herself and then it dawned on her that her eldest boy was going off to university the following year and that next year she'd only be making two lunches and she burst into tears realising how much she'd miss him, she would miss making his lunch because she adores him and he won't be around the house anymore. And she said, and it was suddenly like her brain connected, I've got goosebumps saying it, her brain connected up to the privilege of making their lunches, to the of being their mother, that she had three healthy children, that she had money to buy the food, to pack the lunches, that the kids had access to an education. So she flipped the whole thing on its head and went, and the lunches then stopped being this big stressful ordeal for her because she had a perception change. And she did that herself, just from an insight that dropped when she realized she was going to miss her son. So I get that. So I get that a life can be really busy and really full in the way that you described it for the 40-year-old mum with three children under 10. It can be busy and full, but it can be thriving. It doesn't have to be stressful. And it's not stressful. It's it's not stressful. It's simply busy when we are doing what are what for us as an individual are high priority actions, which we can't always do because we've got responsibilities like washing the dishes or whatever it is. But while ever we perceive that our stress comes from outside of us, we're never going to resolve it. We're always going to think that our stress comes from that person or that situation or the to-do list. And what we've lost sight of is that it's actually our response to the person or the to-do list or the situation. So when you walk through your kitchen sometimes and there is a pile of dirty dishes, sometimes you go, oh, there's some dishes. Oh, I wish an angel would float down from the sky and deal with that for me. But other times you walk through that kitchen and see that same pile of dirty dishes and your brain goes, oh, my goodness, my entire life is falling apart. I, I can't keep living like this. So the dishes are the same, but our response to them can be very different. And the work of Viktor Frankl has certainly helped my own education and mindset in this area because as a psychiatrist and a Holocaust survivor and having witnessed some of the most horrific atrocities a human being could ever bear witness to the murder and torture of the people he loved most in the world. He still had the presence of mind to write that between stimulus and response, there's a space. And in that space is our power to choose our response. And in our response lies every single ounce of our growth and our freedom. So we literally get to respond how we, we get to choose how we respond to everything. And I mean everything. It's just that for a rushing woman, she will have piled so much into her day for so many reasons, and one of them is that rushing women typically find it very hard to say no. And so, you know, someone will come, we're out, we're, our day's already full, and then someone will come to us and say, oh, could you help me with this? And every bone in your body is screaming no, and then what comes out of your mouth is sure. <laughs> and we do that because we want them to see us in a favourable light, but we usually can't see that at the time. So we need to be, a life is, uh, it's easier to say no to the things that, it's beautiful to say yes, we're going to lose a sense of kindness and community if we say no to everything. I don't mean that, but what I mean is when someone is drowning in their own tasks and they say yes to something that they really don't want to be part of, You've got a, there's an opportunity in that. There's a massive opportunity to learn something about yourself in that moment when you say yes, when you really wanted to say no. Do you think a lot of people are aware of their own values though? I think that's the problem. Do I think what, sorry? Do you think a lot of people are aware of what their values are? No, no. And it is, I actually wish it was taught in schools to understand what your highest, your three highest values are because then they can direct your life. And when you're doing, when you've got to do the washing up or when you need to do something that doesn't really spin your tyres, if you can link it to your highest values, it makes it so much more pleasurable or at least a lot less taxing when you're, when you're linking it. Children do this very easily. I remember a little boy who he just didn't want to pay attention in maths. He loved art. And I, the, the te- it was the teacher's doing was so insightful and said, okay, 
you know, we've got to sort you out in maths because you won't sit still, you disrupt the other children. So, you know, what are you going to, you love art, what are you going to be when you grow up? Well, of course, I'm going to be an artist. Okay, so are you going to have exhibitions? Well, of course I am. Right, well, are you going to sell your paintings? Yep, well, how are you going to count the money? How are you going to add all of that up? And so with much in much more detail than that, and it took a lot longer, but that teacher very cleverly linked what that child cared about to what he needed to be doing with his mathematics and uh, to, to, so he would take interest in it and, yeah, it, things change for him then in, in maths class. So we can do the same thing in our own lives when we know our own values. I think the, the book that you mentioned there about Viktor Frankl is Man's Search for Meaning and if people haven't, it's only 150 pages and only about 80 pages is the real story and then he talks about his type of therapy that he has. Uh, so I would highly recommend it, but it, it's linked back to what Livia said in relation to the values. It's like, he or she who has a wild bear with almost anyhow is what he talks about. If you have a clear on your why and why you're doing something, life is a hell of a lot easier. And what I think it's also kind of like a catch 22 of those who struggle with mental health that like it's your choice and how you react to things. There's a fine line between the two, I think. Yes. And some people can kind of latch on to that as like, well, like it's, 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 I have a proper reason for it why I can't react. But it's it's coming back to not having intentionally been taught. It's it coming down to potentially having depression and all that kind of stuff. So those those elements are part of it. But as you said, the examples that we were talking about were the small minute things like getting annoyed about the, potentially the cooking not being done or homework not being done or kids acting the acting up and stuff like that. So it's those kind of those things because uh, it can be a little bit more flippant. Um, it can feel flippant sometimes for those who are potentially struggling with mental health at the minute. So I just have to throw that caveat out there. You um, you mentioned, th the last question is you mentioned thyroid and you've mentioned in the book in relation to the differences between the kind of the two main things that are, are with and why is there a massive kind of rise in thyroid issues going on at the minute? Because it's a lot more prevalent, particularly in the last four, five, ten years even. Yes, isn't before. it, Shane? Yeah, it really is. I agree very much. So obviously nothing in the body stands alone, nothing in the body works alone, and the thyroid gland is part of a bigger network of the whole endocrine system that's essentially governed by the, the hypothalamus, which is a region in the brain. And the hypothalamus is forever asking the question, am I safe? And it does that by looking out into your environment. Okay, is there oxygen? Is there food? What's the temperature? Can I can my human survive in with all of the availability of all of these things? Okay, yes, tick. But then the hypothalamus is also looking into our blood for information. And so when it sees high circulating levels of adrenaline, for example, it can't discern between the adrenaline that we would make if our life's in danger or the adrenaline we would make if we've had a few coffees and we've got all those emails that we're worried about getting back to people promptly with. So it sees the adrenaline and says, am I safe? And of course, the answer is then no. So the hypothalamus then says to the pituitary gland, we're not safe. And the pituitary, which is also in the brain, then communicates to all of the endocrine glands she's in charge of. I call the pituitary the mother gland because she looks after and nurtures and cares for all the other uh, endocrine glands in the body being the thyroid, the ovaries, the adrenals, for example. So thyroid hormones are needed by every cell in the body to function and they, they speed things up. The more of them they are, the faster things work. Now, everything in the body obviously has what's called a level of homeostasis, which is just the scientific word for balance. And every, literally every cell inside of us seeks homeostasis. So then we as an entire being can exist in homeostasis, which obviously there's oxidation and reduction reactions going on all the time, but everything, literally everything seeks homeostasis. And so when the when we've got high circulate, sorry, when we've got high circulating levels of adrenaline, that too speeds everything up. So it speeds up your heart rate, for example. And we will get feed when we've lived for too long with the answer to the question to am I safe being no, and the pituitary's been saying to the adrenals, make adrenaline. It's once that's gone on for too long, it's as if the body is so revved up. It's we've been getting feedback that we need to slow down, that we need to make some changes, but we're often not paying attention to that, or we ignore it, thinking it's impossible to change because I've got all these people who need me and all these demands on my time. But eventually the pituitary will say to the thyroid, look, my human is already so revved up 
I can't let you, my thyroid, continue to make as many hormones as you once were because you speed everything up as well. And if I let you keep making the amount you're making, my the human's going to blow a gasket. She's going to blow the lid off. Us. You know, she's going to implode with intensity. And so the pituitary will say to the thyroid, you need to downregulate your hormone production for the benefit of, of the total person because she's been living on adrenaline for so long, which has been speeding everything up. So then without as many thyroid hormones, everything starts to slow down, including metabolic rate. So that's one one big overarching mechanism that comes due to essentially rushing woman syndrome, that constant relentless output of stress hormones. That's one of them. The other thing uh, that is going on, the simplest way I can say it, Shane, is it's as if our metabolic health is declining. So it's as if the, our total body burden of the accumulation of problematic substances is ever so slowly increasing. So what's being asked of all of our detoxification mechanisms, our liver, our bowels, our lungs, our kidneys, with our urinary system, our skin, etc. Anything that's problematic that enters our body through what we eat, drink, inhale, put on our skin, anything that's problematic or foreign has got to be dealt with, detoxified before we can get rid of it. So we are asking more of our body in that way than ever before because there's more problematic substances now in our environment just for a start, let alone in the food supply. So that total body burden, I think, has significantly increased uh, certainly over the last decade and a bit more than that and then that has that also has um, that can also lead to compromised thyroid function if you how often would you recommend someone to go and get their hormones checked because i don't think enough a lot of people do it's kind of like an mot or an nct for your car you need to check what's under the hood in order for it to figure out what's going on but how often should would you recommend someone to get that done well it's yearly is fantastic. So I think particularly across the menstruation years, it's really good to have iron your iron studies done every year and thyroid function tests done. It's just that health systems at the moment in the Western world don't really work in a preventative way. They'll only test once a person is suffering. And we, I know certainly down under, you can offer to pay for blood tests when you want something more extensive done. Um, I don't know about in other countries around the world if you can offer to pay for them, but certainly there are integrative G, down under they're called integrative GPs. They're, 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 they're general practitioners who've gone on and done additional training in nutritional and environmental medicine usually. They they are more likely to do additional blood tests, do additional testing that can be really useful. So sometimes just having an integrative doctor um, for that kind of, that kind of metabolic work and that, those metabolic insights can be really helpful. But those thyroid function tests, may, it, it depends on symptoms as well. I, I judge I judge things off symptoms. The body lets you know when something's a problem. What makes me sad is when someone has all the symptoms of an underactive thyroid and they've had blood tests, but they've been told it's normal. And or it's not, it's not below the range. That's it. Yeah. I talk about it in the course because it's really disheartening when you get the, oh, well, I've been told it's normal. Well, no, because when do you get blood tests when you get them, when you don't feel right? What if your best level, your most amazing level of health was when you were 22 years old and you're, down under the normal range for TSH is 0.4 to 4. But let's say when you were 22 at your best level of health, your TSH was 1 and that's the best level of it for you. And now let's say your TSH is 3. It's still in the normal range, but that's you're now making three times what was ideal for you. And that obviously then has a ripple effect down to free T4, T3, etc. So the other thyroid hormones. So yeah it's it's really good to know uh it's really good to know where you're at yeah i think i've i've had it a lot with clients in relation to when you ask them to go to say the normal gp to kind of like get their um hormone screen it's like what well, are you having issues with ovulation no but they're like no we're not doing it that it's kind of like 
as you said, it's a preventative measure. They're kind of like, that's the way that's inclined. I think it is changing in the UK. I think the UK have brought in something with the, do the doctor's training now that they'll have to do a kind of like a um, female hormone element or curriculum onto it, onto the modules. Um, and I think they're going to try and improve nutrition. I'm not 100% because I don't think doctors get proper. I don't think, think they get an awful lot of qualification or training on that, if any. I'm not 100% sure. Um, but I think it, like if, if someone wants their hormones checked, they have the right to it. It just may mean that it's, there's an extra step for you, unfortunately, at the minute until things change. I think things are changing, but it's kind of like it's only changed in probably the last five to 10 years. And you're trying to do outdo a hell of a lot of years before that, unfortunately. Maybe I could chat all day and there's so much in that episode like writing down like a lunatic in relation to what we've spoken about because the questions i have sent over haven't been stuck to at all um but thank you so much for for coming on where can people find out about your work where can people work with you and where can people find out about your books oh thank you so much shane uh, thanks for having me on my website is drlibby.com so d-r-l-i-b-b-y.com uh, I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a nutritional biochemist. Uh, I don't see patients one-on-one -on -one anymore. I, um, I write books. I have 13 different books and I've got a whole range of online courses. I've got a detox course uh, that explains detoxification uh, in a really thorough way. And then, of course, I've got the rushing woman syndrome online course as well if what we've talked about today resonates. So, yeah, people can go and check all that out on, at drlibby.com. Amazing. Libby, thank you so much for coming up. Thank you so much for everything you're sharing with the world, Shane. The world needs it, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you so much.